This morning, we are continuing our sermon series, The Gospel According to Jacob, and our scripture reading is Genesis 35, 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were on in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bekoth. God appeared to, to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of this of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Well, hey, thanks, Kara. Um, good to be with you this morning. Uh, so a long, long time ago, um, I was traveling with my parents and my sister, and as was quite common, you have to know this is before Apple Maps or Google Maps, okay? My mom looked over at my dad and said, do you know where we are? And my dad, he just kept on driving in silence. And then a few minutes later, um, my mom, with a little bit more inflection, said, Bruce, do you know where we are? That's my dad's name. And um, to which my dad finally responded, we're we're headed in the right direction. Which essentially meant this. um, No, I don't know where we are, but based on my internal compass, we will get there sometime. All right. And you know what? We always did. Somehow we always got there, but oftentimes it wasn't the most direct route. And that experience is what actually epitomizes the journey of faith, uh, the, the, the journey to God. Uh, if we're honest, you may know this, you get off course. Uh, in our passage today, Jacob has found himself off course. Uh, After reconciling with Esau, instead of heading to Bethel, 
where God had told him to go, he settles down in the city of Shechem. And Jacob stops 20 miles short of Bethel. And, you know, perhaps it was because of economic possibilities, perhaps something else. But whatever it is, commentators note that this is yet again in Jacob's life a moment of spiritual compromise. Jacob is off course. And what's interesting is the tragedy that arises out of Jacob's compromise is actually found in chapter 34. We were there a few weeks ago. We did this a little bit out of order, but there was the tragic rape of Dinah, his daughter, at Shechem. And his, his passivity as a leader of the family in which his two uh, sons filled the vacuum and in revenge killed the men of Shechem. And so as the passage opens here in Genesis 35, Jacob is yet again a moment of crisis. He's fearing for his life, his family's life. He's not sure if the, the people around him are going to come and, and seek revenge on him for what his family just did. And here's the deal. Although you and I are far away from the physical city of Shechem, if we're honest, in our journey of faith, we can relate. For other times, like, for like Jacob, you and I make spiritual compromises. Perhaps old patterns of sin reemerge in our life. Or we go through a season of suffering and we're angry. And so we distance ourselves from God. Sometimes we're just disillusioned by the church. And so we just decide to take a hiatus from the people of God. Sometimes, you know, we, we actually do continue with spiritual practices, but if we're honest, we sit there week after week and our hearts are so disconnected from what we sing. And the question for Jacob and the question for us is simply this, uh, how do we get back? How do we return to God? How do we, in the midst of our spiritual compromising, in our wandering, when we're off course, how do we return to him? And friends, this is why this series is so helpful. This is why it ought to give us hope, because what we see in Jacob's return to Bethel in this passage is his return to God is simply this, it is all because of God's grace. It is all because of his grace. And I want to show you three facets this morning that we see in this passage of God's grace. We see a grace, a, excuse me, an, an initiating grace, a purifying grace, and then lastly, an abounding grace. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, we know as we begin this morning that as the song says, our hearts are prone to wander. And in your kindness, would you illuminate for us the way back to you? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, initiating grace, you know, 20 years earlier,
When Jacob first arrived at Bethel, he was fleeing from Esau. If you remember, he had stolen the blessing from Esau, his older brother, and he's running for his life, and God shows up in a dream. He sees a a dream of angels descending and ascending, and God, in that moment, gives him a promise that this land is going to be his. And the stunning moment of that first scene at Bethel where he meets God is simply this. Of all the people you might expect God to reveal himself to and make these remarkable promises, Jacob is definitely one of the last on the list you would think would get that. And yet God comes, even when he didn't deserve it, even when he wasn't looking for it. In other words, right there at the very beginning of Jacob's life, It is God's initiating grace that actually is where he encounters God. It's not because he's looking for God. It's because God is looking for him. He goes first. And in the midst of this passage, the very beginning, in the midst of Jacob having this great moment, this tragic moment of a spiritual compromise in the events of Shechem, notice how the passage opens in verse 1. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Notice that God comes to Jacob and goes first. He said to Jacob, arise, go back to the spot where you you first encountered my grace. And and here's what that means. It means before we ever return to God, it's always initiated by him. He always goes first. You know, and listen, this is a constant theme throughout the scriptures. We go multiple places, but let me just take you back to the very beginning, the opening page of scripture. God creates this amazing world, puts our forebears in the middle of it, made in the image of God, and in the middle of that, they rebel against God. They, they go to the tree of the knowledge they weren't supposed to go to, and they eat of the fruit. And what's remarkable is right after they do that, they hide from God. That's what it says. They hide. They, they, they don't come running to God saying, hey, we blew it. We messed up. Please have mercy on us. No, they hide from him. And you know, the first thing that God does God doesn't come after them saying, what have you done? He says this, where are you? Where are you? Those are the first words. The first words. He goes first. And the reason why it's so surprising here in Genesis 35 is because Jacob, think about this, before settling down in Shechem, do you realize what he just got done experiencing. We were there a couple weeks ago. He had wrestled with God in the middle of the night, and he'd actually prevailed. God gave him this new name of Israel. And then right after that, we saw this last week, God miraculously brings about the reconciliation between he and his brother Esau. I mean, if you want to talk about having a spiritual high, encountering God and seeing God do remarkable things in your life, 
the very depth of the brokenness of the relationships you've brought through, and now you're back and you're reconciled. And you just experience that, and then right at that moment is when he gets off course. And one might think at this point that God would have given up on Jacob, right? Haven't you figured it out by now? And yet, it's God's initiating grace that calls Jacob in the very moment when he's facing all of the repercussions of a spiritual compromise where God says, arise and go to Bethel. Go to the place where you first encountered my grace. And friends, this gives hope, does it not? Because oftentimes, we wander, when we settle spiritually, when we're off course, we think certainly God is through with us. We think certainly that God has given up on us. In fact, if we're honest, sometimes we think we've given up on our own selves. But rather, what do we see here? We see even in the midst of Jacob's spiritual compromise, God does not give up on Jacob. Rather, he calls him to return. And let me ask you, do you, do you know that? Do, do you know his initiating grace? Do you know that even in your wanderings, even in the midst of your spiritual compromises, even then, God's initiating grace is still there? One of my friends put it this way, God has not given up on Jacob, and he has not given up on you. But not only do we see God's initiating grace in this passage, we see a grace that purifies. Uh, look, at, look with me at verses 2 through 4. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So he gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. And the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob receives the call to return to Bethel, but he knows something. He understands that he and his household, since they've been living in Shechem, they're, they're filled with the gods of Shechem. And he knows he can't return to Bethel with the gods of Shechem. He knows he can't return to God with the gods of Shechem. So he tells his family to give him the various articles so they might get rid of them. They, they change their clothes, which is a, a purifying ritual. And Jacob knows that's how they're going to return back to Bethel. And, and listen, the, the same is true for us returning to God. Listen, we may be unfamiliar with the gods of Shechem, but our hearts are no different than Jacob and his family. See, the gods of Shechem are simply this. It's anything that you value above God. That's what it is. It's if we build our identity on anything else other than the God who made us 
and redeemed us in Christ, we have the gods of Shechem. There's a story I heard a number of years ago in which a pastor was talking to one of the teenagers in the church, and uh, this young girl was quite distraught. And so the pastor began talking about just the gospel, the good news of Jesus, began talking about, okay, so do you, do you know you're a sinner? Yes, I know I'm a sinner. Have you put your trust in Christ? Yes, I know I've I put my trust in Christ. I know I'm forgiven. But then she said this, but none of that matters unless boys like me. There it is, the gods of Shechem, boys, right? Now, right, in, in some ways, even on the inside, like we, we chuckle at that, right? There's something about that. But the truth is, for each one of us, our hearts are prone to wander. It might be our boss's opinion, which is higher than God's opinion of us. It, it, it might be a spouse or a lack of a spouse. It could be kids. It could be what is or is not in our bank account. But the short version is this, is that all of us, our hearts are prone to take the gifts that God gives and exalt them to a place in which they are ultimate. And we are filled with disordered loves. And listen, if you want to know where you run, where your disordered loves are, um, one of the most helpful diagnostic pieces was what Archbishop William Templeton said this way. He, he put it this way. He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, where does your mind run when there's not something in front of it directing where it goes? That's your real religion. That's your real God. I'm not sure what it felt like for Jacob to collect the rings that memorialized the gods of Shechem. I'm not sure what it would have felt like to bury them under the terebinth tree. But I imagine there were probably moments where it was not easy. Because let's be honest, when you've been running with other gods, other than the one true God, when you place your identity in money or sex or power or status, you settle into beliefs and patterns that make you feel secure and provide an illusionary moment of status. But it's only illusionary. And it's hard to let go. But the purifying grace of God calls you to hand them over and bury them. And here's why. There's this illuminating quote by Augustine in the fourth century. He said this, he put it this way, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In other words, it's simply this, that you were made for God. You were made for God. If you put anything else in the place of God, 
by the gods of Shechem, it'll do a work on you. It'll eat you alive. There's actually only one spot. There's only one God that you can place there and actually find the rest. And that's why a return to God is always going to mean handing over anything other than this God and burying those gods at the terebinth tree because you can't take those home and return to God. But lastly, the return to God involves an abounding grace. As Jacob returns to Bethel, he sets up an altar. And it's the very same spot where God previously revealed himself 20 years earlier. And look at how God responds in verses 9 through 11. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. God appears to Jacob again, and not only does he appear to him, he renames him again. And he once again, he renews the covenant that he made 20 years earlier with him. He promises that a company of nations will come from him. That the blessing given to Abraham and Isaac for the land would be his. And listen, if you're at this point, like me, you should be stunned. Why? Because certainly, once you wonder... After, after just being off course so many times, wouldn't you think that just maybe when God appeared to him, he would have said something like this, you know, you, you were Israel, but because of what you just did, you're now Jacob again. That's not what he does. Wouldn't you think that the covenant that God made with him the first time when he got here, the land would be his. Wouldn't you think that after another detour, the deal might be off? Wouldn't you think maybe his destiny would be different? Maybe the, the promise, the Abrahamic promise, maybe it wouldn't actually flow through him. Maybe it'd have to be forfeited, but not here and not now. When Jacob gets to Bethel, his name, his identity, his destiny is all renewed and it's all confirmed. It's astounding. Even though Jacob kept failing, God's initiating and his purifying and his abounding grace nevertheless is there. That is why he's made it to Bethel. And friends, this initiating, purifying, abounding grace we see here, as bright and wonderful as it is, it gets even brighter. And more clear, when years later, when a descendant of Jacob shows up, and we see the initiating grace of God in the person of Jesus, the God who in the garden said, where are you, comes down in the person of Jesus, and he goes first. And he goes all the way to the cross. And it's a purifying grace. For this Jesus, he says, if you... If you're going to follow me, 
You're going to lose your life. It's the only way you're going to find it. It's purifying. It's all, it's all about him. And it's abounding. For through faith in him, you receive a new name, a new identity, a new inheritance. And though like Jacob, you may wander and be off course, it's God's initiating, purifying, and abounding grace in Christ that will bring you back again and again. One more thing. The end of the passage is really intriguing. Look, look at verse 15. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And here's what's strange. is because 20 years earlier, Jacob had already named it Bethel. The question is, why are you renaming it? There's a lot of different thoughts to this, but one of my close friends, uh, his take on it is, I, I, I actually agree with, he, he, he put it this, something like this. Although Jacob had been there 20 years earlier, the place he's now is different. It's different than when he first arrived. It's different when he first arrived and God met him graciously. It was, of course, at first a complete surprise. But now, after 20 years of journeying with God and many times going off course, many times, and yet find himself back here again, in which he once again encounters this God of grace, it's different. Listen, and the same is true for those in Christ. You see, the longer you're a Christian, the more you realize how frequently you're off course. You, in so many ways, you understand how often you have compromised your heart and run after other things. Yet along the way, God continues to initiate and purify and reveal his abounding grace to you. And it brings you back to Bethel again. There's this, um, there's this poem by T.S. Eliot called Four Quartets. It's a long poem, but there's a line in which it epitomizes what's happening, I think, here. And the line is this. It will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. In other words, when you experience this grace, over and over again in your life, when you realize the only way you ever made it back to Bethel again is because God had not given up on you, you know that grace in a deeper and more profound way than you knew it at first. Uh, years ago, there was a song uh, written by one of my favorite bands at the time, Cayman's Call. And um, the song was called The Only One. And the first stanza, it says this, I come from a long line of leavers out of the garden gate with an apple in their hands. I expect and believe you're going to run out of love. You're going to give the shove because that's the thing that lovers do. And then the artist says, then there's you. And explain what was behind the song. One of the writers put it this way. The song is about my fear of being left. And yet it was about the mysterious staying power of God's unconditional love. So two things this morning. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know God's initiating, purifying, and abounding grace that is yours in Christ? Do you know, as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, that the one who began a good work in you, the one who began, initiated, he will carry it on to completion. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you see that? And secondly, if you're at Shechem right now, arise and go to the spot where you first encountered his grace in the person and work of Jesus and worship. Let's pray. Father, you alone are the one that can take our wandering hearts and lives and bring us back. So we ask that you now, through the work of your spirit, might do that that you might lead us back to you, to the place where you meet us with your grace in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Amen.